good morning. Y'all doing all right today? Good, good. About to watch Troy die. If I was to say a phrase, if I was to sing a phrase, do you think that you could sing the next phrase? Think you could do it? Let's try it. Amazing grace. Man, that was very good. I'm impressed with you. What about this one? The stars at night are big and bright. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it so much. If you are new with us, we, all, we start all sermons by singing deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> as you should. No, uh, I want to make a point with that. I want to make a point by asking a question. Who taught you? To clap four times and to sing deep in the heart of Texas. Who taught you to do that? Maybe you don't remember who it was that taught you that. Maybe it wasn't something that no one ever sat down and said, listen, this is what we do. We clap four times and then we sing deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, Last night, I took the boys to um, FC Dallas game. And so it's a soccer game. I expected it to be slightly different than a Texas Rangers game. And yet... They started that game by singing deep in the heart of Texas. There was this group of Mormon missionaries, like 30 of them in front of us, obviously not from Texas, had no idea what we were doing, you know. <laughs> I wanted to lean over and say, we're part of a different cult, is what I wanted to say, but, but I didn't. My boys don't let me be rude in public, so... So anyhow, you learned that. You learned deep in the heart of Texas. You learned those four claps just by repetition, just by growing up around here or spending any amount of time in Texas. You learned that from a childhood. You learned that from being at Globe Life and singing along with 40,000 other people. That is how we learn it. We learn it through repetition, repeatedly singing the same thing over and over. In DFW, we don't really see stars at night, you know. My eyesight's not all that great, and so every night I see about six shooting stars going towards DFW Airport, and, and, and it's beautiful. So many shooting stars around here. They're beautiful. Real slow, but beautiful. And we're not real sure where the heart of Texas is, but we sing that song, and we mean that song, and we love that song because it's just part of our culture. We learn things through it. In Exodus chapter 12 and 13, a tradition similar to that one begins. And you may not recognize how similar they are, but they are. There on that bloody night in the midst of a battle, a repetition begins that the Jews will sing for thousands of years and continue to sing to this day. A story and a song that they repeat over and over and over again. That bloody night repeated, sung, and retold. Every detail of it, it teaches the Jewish people their history and it will eventually evolve and diverge to teach Christians about the sacrifice of Jesus and the love and the power of God. They did and we still do repeat to remember him and what it was that he did. We're going to talk about what it is that they repeated and the night that it was born. But before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us. God, I thank you for the opportunity to speak your words. I pray that I would be clear, that you would bring to my mind and my mouth what it is that I have studied this week, and that it would clearly touch the hearts of people so that we would not be impressed with a preacher, but instead amazed by our God. 
So God, today may we focus in on you, make much of Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So at this point in Israeli's history, they've been in Egypt for 430 years. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians have enslaved them, taken them into captivity and done unspeakable things to them, forced them in unimaginable labor and even gone as far as to kill off the male children when they were infants. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians are cruel masters to the Jews. God has sent a man by the name of Moses to go and to deliver his people, to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh will not do it. He is hard-hearted and God gives him over to his own hard heart. And so God, one uh, day, one series of events launches an attack, a counter-offensive against the king of Pharaoh. And he systematically proves that he is the one true God king and not Pharaoh and not their pantheon of fake deities. He is the one true king. And he launches this attack in what we call the ten plagues. The tenth plague is particularly brutal. It is particularly bloody. In which God says that those homes in which there was not blood of a lamb on the doorpost, he would take the firstborn from that home. Similar to the way that Pharaoh had attacked the Jews and killed off their children, God is going to do the same to Egypt. However, unlike Pharaoh, God, as he always does, makes a way of escape, makes a a path toward grace. Simultaneously, at that night, the night that we call the Passover night, in which the death angel would pass over the homes with blood on the doorposts, God institutes a meal. It's a celebration. It's a meal that they are going to continually repeat and re-sing and celebrate year after year after year. There are elements of this meal that are going to be um, food, of course, but there's also songs that they sing. There's blessings that they say. All sorts of elements that they're going to continually repeat. Here's a few of the things that are unique about this. In verse 12, uh, in 12 verse 14, God is saying that this will be a memorial to you every year, once a year at a particular time. Don't miss that. When God institutes uh, Passover or Passat, when he does that, it is every year, once a year at a particular time. It involves four cups of wine, a roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and some matzah, which is unleavened bread or flat bread. By the way, I googled it and tortillas do count as unleavened bread. It's true. It's true. So when you go to Rosa's this afternoon, I don't know what you would do, but you know, thank the Lord. It was a seven day celebration, but there was this one particular meal in which it was sort of the culmination of the celebration. It involved the retelling of the story of Joseph and Egypt and Moses, and it had repeated sung prayers and it was very beautiful. Consequently, I want to share with you that on March 30th, our church will be participating in a, what's called a Passover Seder. All right. We have a Messianic Jewish rabbi coming, which means he's of the Jewish faith, but he sees Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as we do. And he is going to explain to us the history of the Passover and how that influences our faith and how it eventually points to Jesus. That's March 30th. It's $5 a person. And if you go out into the big steeple lobby and go over to the, the desk over there, uh, you can sign up. We've already, very limited seats. So I want you to be a part of that. It's going to be really... How many of you have never gone to a Seder? Any show of hands? Look at up. 
you need to. You really, really need to. It is quite the thing. All right? So this morning, I hope to briefly look at three key elements of the Passover and how they inform our understanding of what we will eventually call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. You'll hear those words all referring to essentially the same meal that is birthed here in this uh, Passover. Now, this text is particularly complex. Okay, the chapter 12 and chapter 13 of the Exodus story is complex. At least it's complex to me, all right? Because it has a lot of Jewish faith in it, a lot of tradition, a lot of history. It points clearly to Jesus and then it will, the meal will evolve into what it is that we celebrate. So when you read this meal and then you think about our little tiny cup of juice and a little cracker, you're thinking, how did we get from there to there? And so there's all of these complexities. And so as I typically do, I read all of the commentaries that I have relevant to this, some of the books relevant to this. But one of the resources that I like to uh, pay attention to is a podcast by what is probably my favorite Bible teacher. His name is Tim Mackey, and he had a podcast dealing with just this topic. So I found that very, very helpful. I'm going to post that link later to my Facebook. I hope that you will listen to it. Subscribe to the stuff that Tim Mackey is a far better teacher than I could ever be. In that podcast, he mentions or talks about a rabbi named Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel. And Rabbi Gamaliel uh, is uh, sort of an extra biblical character. You only find him mentioned one time in the Bible. He is the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, which we, well, later he picks up another name. doesn't change his name, but he picks up another name named Paul. All right. So Paul's teacher, his favorite professor at college was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, in the Bible, he says the whole thing about like, hey, don't mess with these guys. If it's of men, it'll, it'll fizzle. But if it's of God, you'll be fighting against God. Great quote. All right. Well, he has another quote. Here's what he says. Whoever did not say these three things on Pesach had not fulfilled his obligation. And these are they, Pesach, Matzah, and Marar. What Gamaliel is saying is this, when you are celebrating Pesach, When you're celebrating Passover, there are three essential elements. Now, this is Jewish faith. We are Christian. We believe Jesus is Messiah. But we are looking at the Jewish root of this. And he says these three things are necessary. The lamb, the bread, and the bitter herbs. The lamb, the bread, and the bitter herbs. Which is essentially what verse 8 says. So if you have your Bible, look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. This is what... God says in his instruction to the people through Moses, they are to eat the meat, that's the lamb, that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So why these three things? Why are these three things essential? The lamb, the bread, and the bitter herbs. Well, the lamb, I think that one's a little bit more obvious, right? This is a very visible symbol of faith and sacrifice. You can really see that in the fact that the lamb was to be spotless. It was a perfect one-year-old lamb without a defect. A lamb that is uh, blind or maybe has a split ear or some sort of miscoloring or discoloring on its fur tastes exactly like a spotless lamb. This is not about taste. This is about the spiritual element, which speaks to the idea that the people of Israel not only needed physical deliverance, but they also needed spiritual deliverance. 
That they were not only captive to Egypt, but they were captive to sin. Captive to their sin nature. And so this whole idea here, here is that this spotless lamb would symbolize some sort of spiritual taking, um, taking the place of those who were sinful. It's a male lamb, which is prophetic, but it's also not that unheard of. When you're raising lambs or you're a shepherd, you're going to eat mostly the, the, the males. You're going to keep the females um, for breeding and for um, uh, fur or whatever they call that, wool. Um, you're going to keep all that, but you're going to eat mostly the males. You want to keep the best males for breeding. That's what you want to do. And so in this idea, if you take this perfect best male lamb and eat it, you are sacrificing just by the lamb, just by the presence of the lamb. There is this spiritual element and there is this sacrificial element. But there's also this other element that is being put forth by the lamb. And I'm going to try to show you this. We have this door up here that Rob and, um, and Troy eloquently brought out to us a moment ago. Gracefully and all. I've got some red paint. And what they would do is they would take the blood of the lamb and they would dip in some hyssop, which is like some weeds, essentially. They would dip that in there and then they would just place it along the side of the doorpost, just like this, or the door panel like this. They were probably a lot less careful, but they probably weren't wearing white tennis shoes. And so (laughs) it would end up looking like this. I want you to see this because you can see it. In other words, what I want to ask you is this. Why put the blood of the lamb on the door? Well, one of the reasons is because God told him to. And he said, when you do this, I will see the blood on the doorpost there and I will pass over. I will pass over your home. So that's where we get this idea. I'm trying to get this completely away from my shoes and my shirt. The, um, we will pa- I will pass over your home. But here's the question. Does God need to know? In other words, doesn't God know which houses are eating the lamb? Right? He knows that. Do the people inside the home need some sort of reminder? Well, of course not. They're eating the lamb, right? So they're on the inside and God knows. And so what exactly is going on with this blood on the doorpost? Not only is it the Passover, verse 13 says, the blood on the houses where you are saying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. In other words, not only is the lamb the symbol of a spiritual need, not only is it a sacrifice, but it is also public. Following God is always spiritual, sacrificial, And it is public. The Jews were signifying to all of their neighbors, I trust God. That distinguishing mark. I believe that he will rescue me. Let me ask you this. What are the distinguishing marks in your life and in your worldview? And I'm not talking about Christian art in your kitchen. And that's good. You should have that. Every southern home should have that. But what about faith, love, and generosity? What about being kind to those who would harm you? You know, like loving your neighbor. What about those sort of distinguishing marks? And so when we see the lamb, we see this sacrifice, this pure, this special, unique sacrifice that is public. 
But let's move on to the next thing. We've got the bread. And I don't know why, but the bread was a bit harder for me to picture the symbolism. It's a specific bread. And in a lot of ways, it sums up so much about that evening. It was unleavened. I've never made bread before, but apparently you don't, if you don't put yeast in it, then it will not rise. It stays flat. It's flat and it also takes less time to make because you don't have to wait on it to rise. So I need a volunteer. I'm thinking maybe a, a teenager. Any hands going up yet? All right. Um, I don't know. Let's pick a female. Are there any female hands that are going up? All right, come here. Come here. Here's what we're going to do. If you did not notice earlier, she's not shy. You ever had matzah? All right, this is matzah, all right? Some Jewish words. All right, so I want you to try this and just just give me your honest opinion on it. If it's good, would you have it again? Here you go. Everybody watch her eat. What are you thinking? Is that delicious? Mm -hmm. Would you make your Jimmy John's on this right here? Would you order matzah? You're being silly. Okay, (laughs) in your suit. All right, here, hey, I've got some juice for you. Go. Thank you so much. Y'all give her a hand. The rest of y'all can have this after service. All right. Matzah tastes like a cracker. It's a flatbread and it has very little taste. Regardless of her overly optimistic personality, it, uh, it has very little taste. It's, it does not compare to H-E-B butter tortillas. It is... It is flat and it's dry. And so the question is, what's going on with that sort of symbolism? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus himself will emphasize that leaven or yeast was a sign of sin. Or it wasn't, it wasn't like if you have yeast, then you're sinning. It was this symbol that it would get, and he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. And even though that's true and it coordinates with verses 14 through 20, honestly, the main emphasis of the unleavened bread right here is not so much about the sin. It's much more about time. It's much more about time, the time element. You can see this in 12, 33 through 34 and verse 39. I'll read this to you. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country. For they said, we're all going to die. Essentially, if you stay here any longer, you're going to die. So get. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. And their kneading bowls wrapped it up in their clothes and put it over their shoulder. Verse 39. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt in unleavened loaves since it had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. It's not just the unleavened bread. They were also told to eat with, um, with their shoes on, to eat ready to go, to, to be ready to run out of here. What they're speaking of and what God is continually showing them in the bread is that God is on the move and he doesn't wait for anybody. God is going, all right? That's what he's saying here. You need to be ready to go because when I save you, I'm gonna save you that fast and it is time to go. His movements are definite, It is sudden, it is sure, he's decisive, and he is final. God is on the move. And we who are following him need to have a willingness to go. You have to have seen this by now. If you have been in the church since the beginning of this year, what we have to recognize is that God is a moving God. God is a sending God. He is always on the move. And the unleavened bread really speaks to the idea of, we don't have time to wait. Let's 
go. So in the lamb, we see this sacrifice. We see the spiritual public testimony. And in the bread, we see this instant moving. God is on the move. The last element we will look at is the bitter herbs. Now, these were a side dish to the Jews. They ate them semi-regularly because they didn't take any time to prepare and would add some flavor to the meal. So this is essentially their Chick-fil-A sauce. I need another um, volunteer, but this time a dude. All right. Just uh, you right there. White t-shirt at the end. You come. All right. So this is going to be bitter herbs. That's why I did a dude. I, I feel less bad about it. All right. I have a knack pen if anything gets loose, but if a lot gets loose, I don't have anything for that. Okay. All right. So this is horseradish. You ever had horseradish? Yes. Hey, what's your name? Cooper. This is Cooper. Everybody say hi, Cooper. (laughs) This is how it stinks, man. This is really bad. All right. They make it? That's cool. Did they make this one? No, probably. Oh, no. Okay. Take you. You just get you. Dude. Is that good? If you want. Go. Go. All right, give him a hand. How great. I thought about uh, doing this myself. I have another spoon back there, but no. <laughs> so they would have uh, bitter herbs, all right? And the horseradish symbolizes the bitter herbs. And it was very bitter. The symbolism here is that there is a bitter taste to recall and to remember the bitterness of their slavery. If you look at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, you don't have to, but just kind of make a mark. This is what it says. And the story says that the Egyptians, here's the exact words, worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor. It's the exact same word. That night they were to eat bitter herbs and quite literally put a bitter taste in their mouths. Slavery is bitter. Every year they would eat these bitter herbs to remember if they were there and to learn if they were not there that slavery was bitter. And you might think to yourselves as I thought to myself, 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 why, why do you need to be reminded of that? Every year, they're going to eat bitter herbs to remind themselves that slavery is bad. Why do you need a reminder of that? Well, because the the Jews are particularly stiff-necked. That's what the Bible calls them, or hard-headed, or bone-headed is what we would call them. It's not very long, and they're in the middle of the desert complaining to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Life was so much better in Egypt. Y'all ever read that? They say that repeatedly. Life was so much better in Egypt. In fact, one time they said, life was so much better in Egypt. We had onions. <laughs> they needed to be reminded that life was not that great back in Egypt. It's like the person who said to me, I lived in the good old days and they weren't that good. We need to be reminded that back then wasn't that good. And listen, it's not just the Jews that are stiff-necked and hard-headed. We are that way. We are that way all of the time. Constantly returning to a sin that hurt us. Constantly returning to an addiction. Constantly returning to things that we know will get us in trouble. This is why there are entire groups of people 
who will get drunk, wake up the next day, feel nauseous, vomiting, horrible headache, and then do it again the very next week. We forget bad things. That's what the New Testament says, like a dog to its vomit. We just keep returning to these bad things. And God knew that they needed a reminder. And so God told them to eat these bitter herbs. In the lamb, we see this this spiritual public declaration. In the bread, we see this God is on the move. And in the bitter herbs, we see he is that we are to leave the bitterness behind. To leave the bitterness of sin behind behind and to chase after God. And so every year, every single year, the Jews would take this meal. It's much more elaborate than this. You'll find out a lot more about that on March 30th, but they would take this meal with these three elements in order to remember that, that my, my following God is a public declaration that my following God requires sacrifice, that my following God is a spiritual following God, that I need to actually follow God and be on the move. And I need to leave behind bitterness. That's what we learn when we constantly repeat the Passover. That's what we learn when we constantly sing the Passover. That's what we learn when we constantly retell those stories. That's what we learn except for this. It wasn't just what we need to do in these circumstances. Really, the big impact about the Passover is not so much what the Jews were about to do, but it's what God was doing on that night. You see, when they ate that meal, what they were seeing, that God, that all of the strength of heaven was rushing towards his people, that he was on the move and he showed himself publicly powerful on their side and that in his movement, he would rescue them from the slavery and from the bitterness of slavery. So you fast forward several thousand years, you get to Jesus, who is a good Jew. Jesus celebrated this holiday every year. But like he always does, he takes what is there and shows us something that is much more powerful, something else that is going on. On the night before Jesus is arrested by God's good sovereign plan, Jesus was having this meal. This very same once a year meal. Jesus and his disciples were having that meal. Like I said, it was once a year and it was that time. But this time Jesus is taking the meal to show us no longer just remember the Exodus, your physical freedom from slavery, but to remind us of him. You can read about it in Matthew 26. They had the bitter herbs. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you might first think, I don't remember the herbs. I remember the bread and the wine, but I don't remember the herbs. It's there. There's this passage where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Y'all remember that? He says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples start looking around going, who? Me or who? And Jesus responds, you remember? The one who dips his hand in the bowl. That bowl was the bitter herbs. They would take lettuce or something like that, dip it in the bitter herbs and then eat it. That bowl that they're dipping their hands in, they're not dipping their hands in the wine, okay? They're dipping their hands in the bitter herbs and they're taking that. And Jesus is essentially saying, one of you. And the irony is all of them end up running. All of them end up betraying, but most definitely or most particularly, it was Judas. What Jesus was saying was, what is about to happen is going to free you from the bitterness of sin. They had the bread. While they were eating the bread, you know, Jesus breaks it, 
like the cracker there, eats it and he gives it to one of them. I can imagine one of them taking a bite and Jesus says, this is my body. Because that's weird when anybody says it. But Jesus is saying, essentially, what I'm about to do, I am on the move. What is about to happen is God is going to do something that will provide life like bread. The bitter herbs will rescue you. What I'm about to do will rescue you from bitterness. What I'm about to do is that God is on the, on the move. And yet, in Jesus' meal, in no account, is there any sort of illusion or any sort of recognition of the lamb? In Jesus' meal, there was likely no lamb. There's no account of a lamb there. No mention or allusion to it. This is likely because Jesus was showing them in my death, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice for you. Then the question remains simply this. For them and for us now, do you trust this lamb? Will you put your faith and trust in the lamb that was sacrificed for you? Will you step out? Will you trust him in the lamb that was sacrificed? Will you make a public statement that says, I trust the sacrifice. I sacrifice my own pride. I sacrifice my own way. I sacrifice my own idolatry and I trust his sacrifice and I will follow Jesus. When we look at that meal, when we look at the Lord's Supper, when we look at what Jesus does in our lives, will you trust that lamb? The application here is pretty simple. Either you receive the lamb Or if you already have, then you remember the rescue. That's what we do. When we take the Lord's Supper, um, which we will on Palm Sunday here in a couple of weeks. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not that we are reignitiating salvation. It's that we are remembering that he rescued us through his sacrifice and through his plan. We remember the sacrifice. How How else do we remember the sacrifice? Well, we remember it by inviting others to join in. In chapter 12, verse 38 of Exodus, it says that a diverse group went out of Egypt. Sometimes we get the picture that it was like this sifting and that it was only Jews that left in the Exodus. But that is not true. Egyptians went with them. All sorts of diverse cultures and people went with the Jews. Why? Because they were inviting them in. Because they were constantly making this public statement that I follow God You should follow God. We remember the rescue by inviting others in. We remember the rescue by having our identity rooted in what Jesus did. You remember that distinguishing mark? This means that our hearts and our passions and our lives are aligned with what Jesus did. Not in our own accomplishments, but in Jesus' accomplishment. That's my identity. I remember what he did because he is the one who defines my identity. We invite others in. We set our identity by Jesus' accomplishments and not our own. And then we are intentional, looking forward to the day of his return. One of the strange coincidences, one of the strange aspects of the Passover story is that before they even take the first meal, before the death angel comes, before they're even rescued, God is saying, from now on, you're going to eat this meal in a particular way. Next year, you're going to remember what I did tomorrow night. A hundred years from now, you're going to remember what I did tomorrow night. He was establishing a future-oriented promise. They took that meal planning to take it again next year. Why? Because their rescue was that definite. 
And when Jesus takes the last supper with his disciples, do you remember what he said? I'm not going to take this again until the kingdom is fulfilled. I am coming back. So when we take the Lord's Supper, when we think about what it is that Jesus did, when we think about the Passover, what we're seeing is that we're going to invite as many as possible in, rooting our identity in what Christ accomplished, looking forward to the day when he returns. Because we believe it that sure. Does your family do the whole uh, birthday meal thing? Y'all do that? Where the birthday boy, the birthday girl gets to pick um, the, the favorite restaurant. Our family does that. You pick your restaurant, you go and you eat. It's fun. It doesn't matter if everybody likes that meal because you're the birthday person. And you get to pick that meal. Sometimes that's the only time all year long you get to pick that meal. I love it uh, when you're an adult, you pick something fancy. You pick something nice. It's a birthday uh, treat. And so you're going to spend a little bit of extra money. Kids, you know, they're like Chick-fil-A. You're like, we have Chick-fil-A three times a week. And it's like, I want Chick-fil-A. It's like, fine by me, you know. Uh, Jackie, her dad, her sister, our second son, and our third son all have birthdays very close together. So this birthday meal thing can get out of control, all right? But one year we all went to Babe's, Babe's Chicken, right? That's a great place. Don't know why you're clapping, but um, sometimes y'all clap at things and it makes me nervous. It's like... But yes, I like babes too. And um, so we go to babes and at babes, they do the birthday thing really kind of fun. They'll come out and they'll give you a chicken hat and then they do the chicken dance and you're supposed to, you know, um, flap your wings um, while they do this. And I have this video that I treasure uh, because I'm videoing them all doing the chicken dance, right? And the way the video goes is, um, this was several years ago, the way the video goes is I see Rachel, Jackie's sister, and she's kind of doing it, laughing, just having a good time. Everybody's singing, all that stuff. I pan over to Jackie. She's standing over here and she's grinning just as big as she can. And, and she's flapping her wings. Amos was too little, so he really wasn't doing it. I come over to Roy, my father-in-law, and he's... <laughs> you just got to know my father-in-law. He's going to do things his own way, all right? So... Eventually, the camera pans all the way over to Leland, who's sitting down here, and he has to be, I don't know, five. And he's still all small and chubby and adorable, and, and he's got that chicken hat on, and his wings are going as fast as he can. And he is grinning, looking all over the room like, this is the highlight of my life so far, you know. And it's cracking us all up. I know I'm a dad, and I know no one else cares about that, but... I treasure that video just because of all of the innocence and all of the happiness and all of the joy it was to sing the chicken song at Babes. The meal is less important, right? We'll eat at Babes or we'll eat at Love and War in Texas or we'll eat at Chick-fil-A. We'll eat wherever it is, you know. It's not really the meal. And that's what I really want to instill upon you right now. The meal in this case in the birthday, this one a little bit, but in the birthday thing, is not as important. We're not eating there because we love the food so much. We're eating there because we love the person. And in that practice of yearly having that birthday meal is to remember how much we love that person and to physically, with our sight and with our sound and with 
taste to celebrate that person. When we think about the Passover, when we think about the Lord's Supper, it's a story that roots in a God who loves and ultimately sacrifices everything to rescue us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the symbolism and the beauty of this practice. I pray that we would be encouraged to remember, to receive the lamb and to remember the rescue. So God, today, be in our hearts and our minds. For those who have not yet accepted you as their savior, I pray that they would even now. And for those who need to make a decision, give them the strength and the courage to do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Y'all stand with us. We're going to give you a moment to respond. Maybe you want to receive the lamb for the first time. You want to recognize, you want to make a public statement. I'm really excited. Over the next couple of weeks, we have nine people scheduled to be baptized. And maybe you want to be a part of that. Maybe you want to make a public declaration. You can step forward and let us know that. Whatever it is that Holy Spirit has laid on your heart, you move now as the music plays.